Hello and welcome again to the Persuasion Lab podcast. I'm your host, Moeed Amin. It's great to have you back on the show. Now, the purpose and the goal for this show is to help people involved in persuasion, particularly sales professionals, get the tools, tactics, skills that will help them advance in their career. Persuasion is an evergreen skill that is vital for anyone to master, and we're here to help you do that. So we will cover some of the latest and greatest uh, tools and techniques and approaches and we will invite some of some people that are in the top of their fields. Now, unlike other shows, we're not going to just look at the normal sales kind of approaches, although they are important. We're here to help you become the best version of yourself. And so we're going to be inviting people and have invited people from all backgrounds and expertise, such as behavioral science, body language. We've even had someone come on the show to talk about functional medicine. The whole point is that you are the best version of yourself and delivering the best to your potential. So with that in mind, I'm very excited to have our next guest on the show. Uh, he is uh, one of the titans of the sales le SaaS sales leader world. He has 26 years experience in sales and he's been a senior leader for well-known brands like Oracle, Yext, DocuSign, and he's currently the VP and GM uh, for EMEA and ANZ at Highspot. Now, uh, his experience reads like a PR article for skills and qualities that founders would love to have. And we're going to read some of those things out for you. You know, he's led sales teams through two IPOs and complex acquisitions by companies like Oracle. Uh, he's scaled EMEA revenues for companies from zero to 30 million. Uh, he's led sales, marketing, and uh, customer or services teams from 10 to over 150. Uh, he's delivered 2.5 year on year, 2.5 times year on year growth uh, for DocuSign in 2020. Uh, he's also retained 90% of his team uh, when they were acquired. So he worked for a company called Responses, which was then acquired by Oracle, and he managed to retain 90% of his team during that process. And, and let me tell you, I've been through that. That is not an easy thing to do at all. And on top of that, uh, he's already delivered over 500% growth in revenues in EMEA uh, for Highspot in just two years. Um, so please help me welcome someone who is also a top 50 sales leader, Mr. Andy Champion. Andy, welcome to the show. We thank you. If I ever need a PR agent, then uh, I know where to come. Uh, I'm very humbled by some of those facts and figures and I would say that I've always been blessed to have good teams around me and they are as much responsible for those results that you touched on as, uh, as perhaps I was. It was incredible to, to do the research and, and read about you. And, uh, yeah, it's, 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 I think, I think our, our viewers and listeners are going to get a lot of value from the discussion that we're going to have today. So I want to dive into a topic that is so important and yet, I mean, it is discussed. I just don't feel it's discussed enough um, in terms of how important it really is. And we're going to come on to what you just said about your teams and, and how you elevate your teams, because I think that that is something that's so, so vital. When we talk about the buyer's perspective for now, because change is happening really rapidly, it's not a new, it's not a new thing, right? How do you see buyer's behaviors changing in the next 18 to 24 months? It's, it's, it's funny. Uh, 
actually, as you asked the question, uh, a former colleague of mine, Roderick Jefferson, uh, pops right into mine, my mind. And the reason he does that is that he spoke on a recent podcast uh, about that the, our jobs now is not to uh, adjust to the new normal, but it's to adjust to the next normal. And I think it's really important as you think about that, right? Because look, the facts and the figures are out there. You only have to look. McKinsey uh, in 2021 reported that 70%, 70% of B2B buyers now prefer a digital interaction versus uh, the traditional face-to-face -face, uh, interactions. I think we've all seen post-pandemic that there's been no rush back to in-person meetings. Sure, they're happening, but the threshold, the bar at which they happen, I think is much higher than it was pre-pandemic. You know, you then look at Salesforce, who in 2021, the same year, reported that 80%, 80% of B2B buyers now expect the same level of personalization in their business purchasing experiences that we've all been trained to expect in our personal consumer lives. And you think about MarTech and how that's evolved and the emails we get and the SMSs, they're all really personalized to, to us. That level of expectation, no surprise, has transitioned into the business world as well. And as salespeople, you know, that's, that's then compounded by the fact that on average, the number of buyers involved in a, in a, a business purchasing decision is up from 6.8 in 2017 to, to 11 or more. Uh, in, in today's world, right? And those are numbers that uh, folks may recognize from Gartner reports, right? So there are more people involved who are better informed, who have higher expectations than ever. And so as salespeople, it's a real challenge for how we adapt to that. How do we adjust to that? How do we create the experiences that allow us to succeed? And, you know, the art of persuasion is just one small part of it. And it's interesting you mentioned all, all those stats, Andy, because as you said, you talked about data from back in 2017. This, this change and this progression of change in a particular direction is not a new thing. It's been gradually happening. Sure, there are periods where it just kind of shoots up a little bit and the rate of change is a bit higher than the previous year, but the trajectory, trajectory sorry, in a directional change isn't new. And, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this because my, my feelings and, opi and opinions are a lot of salespeople and teams still struggle with adapting to that change, that, that direction of change. And I feel as if they're further behind the trajectory of the change. And, and I'm wondering if you're seeing the same. And, and I guess if you are, the question really is why? Why have, why have companies and sales teams and maybe sales leaders been so slow to um, not just recognize, but to adapt to that change. It doesn't mean they have to be ahead of the curve, but I just feel that they're even behind, you know, some of that change that's been happening for many years already. I don't know if you're seeing the same. Yes. Um, and I think that there are a lot of challenges, right? If we just think about the world of a salesperson, you're contending with all of the things that I've just spoken about. Your interactions are way more complex with way more people that have way higher expectations. And by the way, who are much more reluctant to meet you in person. So how do you then do all of that over the digital interactions that we have like Zoom or Teams or whatever it might be, right? Where we, you don't have that, that it's harder to create that human to human connection. 
But then you compound that and you just think about the world of a salesperson, right? The world of a salesperson is, is actually not just about those precious few moments in front of the customer. It's about all of the other things that companies ask them to do. It's about managing and juggling all of the other distractions, you know, and, and, and again, there are various studies on this, but in some studies, you'll see that the average B2B seller is only spending up to or less than 42% of their working week selling. So if you just think about that, that's like two days a week actually involved in the activities that drive revenue. And so for salespeople, it's, it's how do you also contend with those internal pressures on top of the external pressures? And I would suggest, and this is why I mentioned Roderick um, just now, one of, the, one of the opportunities we all have uh, around this is to understand the only thing that is constant about change is change itself. And once you do that and you open up your mindset, you become curious about, hey, um, what is working, what is not, and you're almost evolving all of the time. Sure, you know, hold on to the stuff that's working, but only hold on to it for as long as it is working for you. Hold on to those things really lightly and embrace and immerse yourself in experiences and places that help you understand what some of these new trends are, that help you understand and, and, and be able to distill down what's working. And then if you're a sales leader, then extend that at scale. So flexibility, um, the ability to, to change, the ability to be data informed, these are all, I think, traits that are becoming increasingly important to individuals, but especially to sales managers and sales leaders. We have to be data-driven. Uh, data we have to have early warning systems, leading indicators, not lagging indicators. And the quicker we can pivot and empower our teams at scale, the more likely we can adjust to the next normal, not just today's normal. That's really interesting. And, and I definitely want to dig into that a bit further. Before I do so, the stat that you gave about around two days out of the five are only are dedicated, only those kind of two days are dedicated to actually selling. And so that is obviously something that I would hope any leader would look at and say, well, that just can't continue. So what should sales leaders or even founders of these companies do to identify those things that actually salespeople shouldn't be involved in. I guess the question is, how should they look at that? How should they address that and, and increase that from two days to hopefully maybe even four days? Mm -hmm. uh, because that, that, you know, we talk about being data-driven, et cetera, but if we can't get the fundamentals right, which is making sure that our salespeople do more of what they're hired to do, then I think those, those added value, well, they're important, but those added things like being data kind of, get data-driven and data, considerate in your approaches is, is, is really kind of majoring in the minors here. So yeah. how, how should they really think about this? Because that, that sounds like a big problem. It, it's a massive problem, right? And, and imagine the impact of going from a couple of days a week, like I say, 42% um, is, is the number that, that I most recently saw. Imagine just going from, even if you just went from 42% to 50% of your time selling, that's an extra 20%, right? 
imagine the impact on on revenue. Imagine how that then allows you to outcompete your competitors, right? You don't have to go from two to four, but but go from two days to two and a half days or whatever it might be, right? Challenge that status quo. Look, you know, we could talk for hours just on that topic, but let me let me maybe give one very simple, obvious trick that as a sales leader, first line sales leader or or above, you could do today. Doesn't require technology. It just requires you in your next one to one with with your salespeople to have them open up their schedule and look to next week or the week after and 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 take them have them take you through what they are doing and why they are doing it and when you do that at scale and you do that consistently you very quickly understand what are the things that are taking up my people's time and how can i use technology or uh, quite frankly, radical and 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 clear prioritization to start to remove some of that noise. One of the things that we find consistently is salespeople quite often struggle to find the collateral and the information that they need for the conversations that they're having with their customers. Where is that latest presentation on our financial services proposition? Um, where where, are, where is the case study that backs that up? And again, technology can help with that. And I'm no surprising, a huge fan of sales enablement. It's a game changer. Uh, and there are some things that we can build around the technology like sales plays that can have a demonstrable impact. Sales plays are proven to reduce ramp time by 90, excuse me, by 24%, 24%. And they're proven to increase quota attainment by 19%. So there are some tools and some tricks, but if you're struggling to understand what, what, what's distracting your salespeople, have them open up their diary, go through, identify those things, and then understand how over time you can start to, to, to remove or to, uh, or, or to bring technology in to help you with those. Yeah, that's interesting because, I mean, what you're talking about there is just basically not auditing, right? I don't want it to sound like that, but you're basically just looking at how they're using their time. Do you see sales leaders or even business leaders struggling to do just that? Or is it the question that they've identified certain things, but they struggle on how to overcome it? I suspect it's a combination of, of the two. But until you uncover that first level of information you identify the things that that are impacting your people mm. it's very hard to build a plan you know and if you've built a plan how do you know it's going to address actually what the distractions are is is the training that you're doing effective um, it's all well and good taking people out of the field as traditional training used to do and say hey let's do half a day or a day on negotiation training but i can tell you now that unless that is then backed up by in role reinforcement and coaching by your first line leaders, 87% of that information will be lost within 30 days. But another way, you take people out of the field for a day, you do nothing to reinforce it, and within 30 days, they've forgotten everything that you taught them during that time. Yeah, I, I'm definitely going to come on to that because that's an area I'm passionate about. You know, having a neuroscience background, when I look at the methodologies that people apply when it comes to training it actually goes against our biology in terms of how we ingest information retain it and then apply it and changing the habits and approaches i mean it's, it's just completely against that 
So I definitely want to come onto that. That, that I think that's going to be a pretty, pretty important thing and something eye-opening for, for our viewers and listeners. I want to come back to the salespeople and how they need to adapt to how buyers are changing. So you talked about, uh, you know, being more informed, uh, the distance between salespeople and buyers has kind of lengthened, right? So it's more digital and therefore makes it harder for salespeople to connect with buyers. Um, and, and also because they're more informed, the amount of influence that we as salespeople have on the buying uh, buyers in their buying journey is reducing. What would a top salesperson have to look like? What would that person look like in, say, 24 months' time? How would they act? What skills would they have that would enable them to thrive in this kind of new buyer way of doing things? Well, no surprise, given what we talked about a few moments ago, that I think um, there are a few things that, that, that are going to differentiate the good from the great, right? Because, you know, uh, most most salespeople can be really really good at what they do, but there are some things, there are some traits I think that that differentiate the great from the good. I think the first thing I would say is with more with more stakeholders involved in 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 the process, you got to be really good and intentional about something that 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 I call multi-threading. It is no good just speaking to one or two people within an account when 11-ish, on average, people are involved in the decision. So how do you as a salesperson use all of your skills and the precious time that you have with, with, those, um, with those prospective customers to navigate across that buying group? How do you use your time prior to the conversations that you have with those individuals to come on to those calls to come into those communications through over which through, uh, through over which which whichever channel they come through with an informed point of view it is no longer expected by the buyer that they have to spend 20 to 30 minutes educating you about their business that is a surefire way to doom and fade it you need to come on to those calls, to those meetings with a perspective. And if you don't have a perspective, at least have a, a, a theory, at least come on uh, to those conversations um, where you can actually share a, a, a perspective on what you think may be happening in their business and position that up front to start to understand how the land lies. So you've got to be able to multi-thread and you need to be really good at your research so that you come on uh, and very rapidly build uh, build your credibility so that you can become that trusted advisor. And as I said, don't forget that your buyers are expecting the same personalized experiences they get in their personal life. So there are a lot of challenges to salespeople in how they do that. How do they do that consistently? And again, this is where I think that the importance of sales enablement and sales enablement technologies is just growing incrementally day over day because to do that at scale is incredibly difficult. But the size of the prize for those businesses that do it well is also incredibly large, especially in a time um, uh, such as that that we're in at the moment where budgets are constrained, where people have 
less money to spend, less time. They're trying to get more from the same or less. So the, the, those barriers, right, those, those requirements are that much higher. Mediocrity is not succeeding in the current environment. Now, we won't be in this environment forever, but now is the time where great salespeople and great organizations are built because as we come out of that economic, I would call it a downturn, but the economic challenges, guess what? Those people and those companies that have put these basics in place that have adapted to the current normal and are ready for the next normal will be slingshotted out and will out-accelerate their competitors, both at an organizational and, a, and an individual level. So there was a lot in there and, and you and I are in complete agreement. And I want to, I want to focus in on one thing that you mentioned out of all those areas, and that was coming in with a perspective or at least a thesis. And I, I, I say you have to come in with a hypothesis. That's the term I use because of my science background. The mistake that a lot of people make, and I put a post about this is that they scale rubbish. Um, whereas you need to scale good things first, right? So get good at one thing, whatever it is that you're trying to get good at, get good at that, then figure out how to scale it rather than ramming technology. And, and hoping technology will fill that in. Um, so take the example of, um, you know, cold calling, for example, or just reaching out to people. That thing that you said about hypothesis creation, right? Or, or creating a thesis or a perspective. That's very difficult for a lot of people to do. How have, how, what have, you, how have you seen people who are really good at that conduct that? You know, what is it that they are knowledgeable in? What is it about their characteristic that enables them to do that? Because I, I feel when, when I talk about that with people, the initial reaction is one of fear. It's almost like, well, I, how do I say that in front of an executive? What if I'm wrong, right? Uh, you know, that's going to take me a long time to research, for example. And, and I've seen someone that I managed, I saw them spend almost two hours per call preparing and yet they didn't do the fundamentals, right? Or two hours before they send out an outbound email to try and get a meeting with that person. So that there are some dangers there to that process. So how, how have you seen some of the best people doing that? Uh, and, and what advice would you give to some of our viewers and listeners in, in doing so? So I think um, success starts at an organizational level, right? It, it is my, my personal view, and I think I've seen this time and time and again with the most successful companies that I've, worked with, partnered with, sold to, whatever it may be, um, there is an organizational commitment to helping to solve um, to solve that conundrum. And what do I mean by that? The, the organization does a really good job of succinctly capturing its value proposition and then creating collateral and what I would call sales plays and, and you know, very briefly, what is a sales play? Think of a sales play to a salesperson as a recipe is to a chef, right? If you want to bake a really good sourdough and you have no idea what the ingredients are and how to combine them and when to cook it, when to rest it, you might make a good one, but probably 98, you know, your first 98 tries are going to be pretty unsuccessful. If I gave you a recipe, maybe with a video guide or a, or a sheet of instructions on, on, on what you should know, what you should say, how you should combine those ingredients. The fact is you'll probably make a pretty good uh, fist of the, uh, of the sourdough the first time around. So that's kind of what sales plays are to salespeople, like a recipe, a, a cheat sheet, a cheat code. 
and and the best organizations in the world will be very deliberate in building those capabilities out and then bringing them to their frontline salespeople at scale. And the beauty is that when you do that and when you wrap analytics around it, you understand what is being consumed by your prospective buyers, which things are impacting revenue the most, which things are not having an impact of, uh, on revenue. You, you, you continue to sharpen the pencil. You just get better and better and better. So I would argue, mate, that, that it's less about the individuals uh, as, a, as a first principle. It's more about the organization. And if I, were an, uh, if I were an individual, I would be seeking organizations that have a track record of doing that. I would then be seeking a manager that has a personal proven commitment to coaching. Right? And I wish I could go back 20 years and tell my younger self that the most important thing for me in my career, especially earlier on, was to choose a manager that was going to invest in me, not the company. Now, I got lucky and worked for some really incredible companies. Didn't always work for you know incredible managers. I've worked for some really good managers, but, but not consistently. And if I were to go back 20 years, I would be searching for people that are going to invest in me that are going to coach, develop, give me feedback um, so that I can become, to use your phrase from earlier, the very best version of myself. Now, none of that excuses for poor basic behaviors, right? Being prepared, being thoughtful, doing your research. There's a huge amount of information on companies, on individuals, so that you can come in with a pretty good hypothesis ahead of calls, ahead of conversations. But it's, you know, my point here is, yes, we can do that as individuals, but if we want our individuals to be spending more than 42% of their time selling, we can't then tell them that they've got to spend 60% of their time doing research. We have to, as leaders and as businesses, solve for that as a first principle. I'm going to come on to the coaching part, but let, let's run with the analogy that you used, which is the ingredients. You've talked about high level things like uh, providing them with the research, for example, so that you can give them all their information, but let's dig into a bit further. What are the ingredients that are needed to empower your sales team to present a compelling hypothesis or thesis to their buyers? What, what are the specific ingredients that companies need to think about? You know, it's down to the individual companies to understand what their value proposition is, and and that and that's not something I could, you know, I could necessarily answer in 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 simple terms. But being thoughtful about what is that, you know, what is that value proposition? How do you, how are you going to help your customers and prospectives customers make money, and how do you do it in a unique or differentiated way? And, and being very clear about that are you know are, are pretty good places to start and as i said it's for the company to come up with that and it's usually uh comes through a really close partnership with product marketing um quite often depending on the size and scale of companies um you know if you don't have product marketing you've probably got marketing uh um, um so you know it can start just with a general marketing department but the thing you get there is the consistency of the message and it's really important to have that consistent message out there into the marketplace. We don't want individual salespeople just running around making up their own value propositions. 
it's dangerous and it doesn't scale right and it and it dilutes your your position in the marketplace so i think you know it's really important to to do that but having done that you've then got to make it really easy for your frontline salespeople to find that information so that they know where to go to get the latest presentations the latest collateral the latest case studies and so sometimes you know companies might have at a very simplistic level sort of google drives um or sharepoints um there are challenges around you know just how long that will sustain a company typically you start to see people you know maybe downloading it once but then starting to eat copies on their own hard drive because it's easier so governance and control can be difficult. And again, we come then back down, down into um, different versions flying around, diluting the company's brand. Um, but as companies progress, I think there comes a point fairly early where they probably want to be looking at something like a sales enablement platform that will help provide a single source of the truth. And the reality is, why, why would a company want to do that? Well, the reality is that the simple fact of deploying a sales enablement platform that, that collates all of that information so it can be governed, so it can be controlled, sales people can go to it confident that that is the latest information, hopefully wrapped with a little bit of just-in-time reminder training. The fact of just doing that alone, on average, say, saves between four and eight hours a week four to eight hours a week of an individual salesperson's time. Let me put it another way. We, we have a very large manufacturing client. They operate over uh, in over 142 countries around the, the globe. Um, they move from 1,000 SharePoints across the company, 1,000 SharePoints um, with over 150,000 pieces of collateral across to high spot. And on, on average, their um, salespeople now find the information they need in 19 seconds. So the numbers are real. And as you, you know, whether you've got 10 salespeople or a thousand salespeople, that time saving alone, let alone the consistency of your brand and the customer experience you create is really, really, really significant. So I'd encourage people to think about how can I make it easy? for our people to find the information, to have confidence that it's the right information. Um, and, and then, you know, once we've done that, we can then probably talk about, well, how do you reinforce that with coaching and the likes? But the starting point is one place to go to. And, and, and the time saving is absolutely huge. If you want to affect that 42% um, average sales time in front of a customer, that's a really simple way to take it from 42 to maybe nudge it to 50 or beyond. You talked about the value proposition being important in creating the, the kind of thesis or the, or the perspective. You then talked about the kind of system-based approach for companies to be able to facilitate uh, their salespeople to be able to do that. W what I'm also interested in understanding from you is what are the ingredients on a deliverable level? So what I mean by that is in order to create a compelling hypothesis, you talked about value proposition. But what other ingredients are important for someone to feel confident to be able to deliver a, a, a compelling thesis? Is it, uh, is it business acumen, for example? Is it the research about the industry or the company, right? I, I'm just, I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on the ingredients at an individual level, because you rightly said at the end, you know, you can have the right systems, 
but if you don't, you also need to have the right information as well in order to do so. And I'm just curious on what those ingredients are so that people can feel more confident that they have the right information and that they can deliver it. Really good question. And I would boil it down into four areas. I think it's about understanding prior to a meeting, prior to a conversation, what, what do I need to know? What am I going to say? What am I going to show? And what am I going to do? And when we look at the best sales plays, and I'm leveraging that, but bringing it down to an individual level, that's how they're built. So let me go through them. What do I need to know? So things that you might want to know are um, prior to going on to, into a conversation with an individual, what's going on in that individual's industry? What are the major trends? You then probably want to break it down and, and look at well, what's going on in their company. What information can I glean from um, from annual reports? How could I use uh, AI to help me collate that information? Right, Chat GPT is a wonderful tool, wholly underused. It can save time. But you know what's going on in the in the, in the industry? What's going on in that company? How does that company make money? Um, what are the pain points that that company is likely to be experiencing at the moment? And most of the time, you can get a pretty good hypothesis from the information that is out there. I'd then go a stage further and I'd say, depending on the persona, what is the role of this person that I'm going to speak to? I'd want to spend time being thoughtful about how does that translate to their day-to-day? What are the pressures that they are likely to be under? And how can I then approach that uh, that conversation with confidence? Because as you will well know, probably better than I do, there's one critical ingredient to succeed in sales is going into conversations with a level of confidence, an appropriate level of confidence, right? Thin line between confidence and arrogance, but also if you're not confident going into a conversation, it's just going to be picked up on. And understanding what to know is your first step to succeeding. Translating that into then what to say. Um, Again, there's a lot of technology out there um, that uh, can record calls, that can help you understand, uh, you know, are people using particular phrases, particular personas that are really resonating or not. But but even if you don't have have, uh, access to that, just being thoughtful about how am I going to position this information? And, and role-playing it, right? You don't need technology to role-play. You just need a bit, of, a bit of time with a colleague. And if you haven't got a colleague, record yourself. And when you record yourself, um, I, I would do a couple of things. First off, I would close your eyes and just listen. The second thing I would do is to then uh, turn the volume down and just watch. And then the third thing you might want to do, uh, and, and I learned this from a, a wonderful lady called Pascal Bergmans, um, who talks about um, effective uh, presentation, wonderful lady, um, is to then write down what you hear, what have you said. And I think just the simple art of practicing in, in a world where we're all so very, very time-constrained can be, can be the first thing that goes, but it is probably the last thing that goes. You get one chance to make a first impression. You never get a second chance. So make sure that you're prepared. Put that time aside to role play. Your peers are the hardest audience, but they're also the most forgiving audience. So I would encourage individuals and leaders 
to make time for what I call deliberate practice. So that's what to know, that's what to say, what to show. We all, particularly in technology, I've been, you know, as you said earlier, about 26 years in technology, we're all incredibly proud of our technology. We want to show it off. Possibly not the, possibly not the best place to start a conversation. Let me tell you all about me, right? We've all sat next to people at dinner parties that have done that. You know, and after about an hour that you you know everything about them and they've not asked a single thing about you. Demos, I think, early in the process um, for many companies are are similar to, you know, the bore at dinner that's just telling you about themselves. So I think be be thoughtful about what it is that you want to show. Is there third party data that you can use to back up your hypothesis? that is going to challenge the status quo of how the person that you're thinking, uh, excuse me, that you're speaking to is thinking about their business. Because in my experience, and this is, again, a consistent thing, it's one thing that hasn't changed, people that are buying solutions genuinely appreciate net new insight. Challengers talk about commercial insight, commercial teaching. And so if you can be thoughtful about what you show to bring that commercial insight and visually represent it to people, often with simple diagrams, it's a game changer. And then the final bit is what to do. You know, plan, what are you going to do afterwards? How are you going to follow up? How are you going to continue that conversation over time so that a day later, a week later, two weeks later, whatever it might be, you as an individual and your proposition is still front of mind for that individual. So what to know, what to show, uh, what to sh know, what to say, what to show, and what to do. Those would be the four things I would encourage people to sit down and structure their thinking around. Yeah, that that's incredibly valuable, Andy, because this is an area that I see people struggle with, even experienced salespeople actually. Uh, it's not it's not an area that they're totally comfortable with. I think by just applying at least some of what you just said there, they, they would be way further ahead than where they are now. And I think they will have a much better quality of conversation with buyers uh, by just doing even just, like I said, just some of those things. And, and you talked about, gosh, I mean, there's so many things I'd like to ask you, but I think we're going to run out of time. But you talked about practicing, right? A role-playing. And, and I think that will neatly come into the coaching element. But if we talk about just role-playing for now, you, you talked about lack of time, time pressures. The, those were the words that you used. Is that the main reason why salespeople aren't role-playing or practicing enough? Or do you see something else that's a barrier? I think there are a few barriers in my experience. Um, and one that's often overlooked is um, with, 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 with our leaders themselves, right? You don't magically wake up one morning as a great coach, you, 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 just, you just don't. You might have some innate, innate talent, but just like everything else in life, the more you practice, the better you get. And so I think, sure, time might be precious and sure, there might be other distractions, but here's the thing that's often overlooked is not every sales leader, not every business leader was, was, was born as a great coach. And much like individual performance that we've talked about throughout much of our conversation guess what coaching takes deliberate practice as well it takes thought um it, it takes curiosity 
Curiosity is a superpower for salespeople and for sales managers. And, and so allowing that to come to the forefront to understand, you know, how are people thinking? What are some of the, the, the barriers that are maybe, maybe holding them back, uh, holding them back, but, but it also does need planning, you know, and, and it needs a little bit like, um, uh, we spoke before about opening up your, 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 your diary. You know, in the in the same way as we might encourage people to open up, salespeople to open up their diary and put prospecting blocks into their diary or research blocks into their diary, coaching should be the same thing. And here's the thing: coaching is not forecasts. It's not deal inspection. It might happen as part of that, but it's also important to have that as a deliberate and separate process with all of your individuals. And other than time. It's for free. It doesn't take investment of money. It doesn't take technology. And as a sales leader at whatever level you're at, and as a business leader, as a founder, as a CEO, it is one of the most powerful things you can do to accelerate the success of your company. And there are numerous studies from CSO Insights and the likes that talk about the impact of coaching. And it is significant. And it takes that deliberate practice and it takes time and is often confused with other activities that people think are coaching, like forecasting, but actually really do nothing to change the underlying behaviors and skills of the people that you're working with. And that's what coaching is about. You talked about what coaching isn't. Uh, you gave some examples there. You talked about the fact that coaching is a skill to acquire. It requires practice. Just like the salesperson has to has to practice certain skills, this is a critical skill that a, a sales manager or leader will have to acquire and practice. Can we get down into details? What does great coaching look like? Right. So, um, you know, what what are the, some of the details behind that, so that we help any of our viewers and listeners just really understand what what it is and what it should look like? Probably a very long answer. However, there are two frameworks. Because so I think one of the things important, you know, for for listeners and people, you know, look, we want tools, we want things that are going to help us that we can kind of take today and apply to our business. So there are a couple of things that I'm I'm a big fan of. And actually, we just had a a leadership summit. We took the decision to bring together all of our first line leaders and above in our go to market organization. Um, and we brought everybody together in Seattle for a couple of days, and it was all about accountability and driving performance. And um, there are a couple of very simple tools, frameworks that, that, that I spoke about that I think are game changers for, for managers and leaders. Um, and they're not really about how to do coaching, but they are tools that can help you be effective with coaching. I'm a big fan of smart frameworks, all right? Having those smart goals, uh, it's so simple. Um, and yet, uh, just like common sense, it's quite rare. How many of us have smart goals for ourselves? How many of us have smart goals for our people? And here's the thing. If, if, if you're not using smart goals, how are you ensuring that your colleagues understanding of what good looks like and what the results are that expected, that are expected, how are you ensuring that their understanding is the same as yours? And if it's different, my goodness, where is that going to get you? So I'm a big fan of smart goals. In terms of feedback, 
I think feedback is is also something that can often be hard to give. We're often there's a level of nervousness or or or, or um, concern about how we give feedback to people. And there's a framework that I came across, the ISBI framework, where we talk about our intention. What is the intention of the feedback that I'm about to give? Then when we give the feedback, I describe the situation, the behavior that I've seen this individual elicit, and then I open up their eyes to the impact of that behavior. And the thing Moeda I like about the ISBI framework or the uh, BSI framework, as it's sometimes called, is that it isolates the behavior and, and we're focusing on the behavior, not the individual. And by doing that, I find time and time and time again that the natural defensiveness of the person receiving the feedback dissipates almost entirely and the and the focus of the conversation is then on how do we go about um, changing that behavior but the key at the end of you know the key at the end of that before you move into solving of course is to ask the question um, of the individual just shared this with you but i'm curious what is your perception so smart goals isbi framework I think are two really, really good places for anybody that's wanting to perhaps be thoughtful about how they coach and use a couple of tools to help them with that. Yeah, that, that's really powerful. Uh, I haven't come across the ISBI framework, but I, I use the um, framework from neuroscience, which is the, the SCARF model, which is the um, uh, status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, uh, and uh, fairness. Um, but, but it doesn't actually matter which model you use, you use one model, just pick one and, and, and apply it. So I, I thought that was really powerful what you shared. And, and in fact, I, I too see that coaching is something that is not given its due importance and application as it should be, uh, especially when you look at all the, the data out there and results from researchers you cited that shows how effective it really is, how much of an impact coaching really has. And so I think that if we had just even one or 2% more application of good quality coaching or even decent quality coaching among sales leaders, I think we'll see a disproportionate lift in, in, in all the right metrics for, for salespeople as well. Um, I just looked at the time and I was planning to ask you a couple more questions, but we don't have time for that. And, and, and it's, it, this has been such a great conversation. And I think some of the things, a lot of the things that you shared were just incredible. I mean, it was all incredibly valuable, but there was just so much there. And I, I really hope people re-listen um, to and take notes from from what you shared there. A couple of questions I'd like to ask you that that I ask all, all our guests on the show. So the first one is, what three books or, 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 or influencers or, or experts would you recommend that our, our listeners and viewers should, should read or follow? It's it's funny. I was sort of just looking to the side of my screen here because um, I, I've I've got a, a couple of books, um, two of which I finished and one of which I'm part way through. So um, the first one is is I spoke earlier and we didn't explore it too much. I'm happy to come back another time and maybe do that. But I'm a huge believer that that the results that that are achieved within my business are as a result of the people around me. Right? It's my job to create the space for them to succeed and to help them do it. 
but that's you know it's it, they're the ones that deliver the results so there's a, a great book by um jeff smart and randy street called who and it's really about how do you go about um bringing in a, a great team around you how do you make sure that that you're, you're bringing in the right people whatever the right you know right means for you and your business and the people that are already there so i think that's a really good one um uh, one of the things that that I am incredibly passionate about, and and um, uh, I'm blessed that actually you know, people seem to want to hear from me about it, um, particularly on panels and the likes, is DEI and B. And so I've been reading uh, Authentic Diversity by uh, Michelle Silverthorne, um, and it's really helping me understand as a white middle-aged heterosexual guy that just happens to be adopted what other people that don't have my experiences is like and how can i be authentic in my allyship to the greater community around me so that is something that i'm personally seeing um a huge uh, amount of, uh, of value in and then um i'm going to cheat a little bit more if i may with the final one um we've all done lots of assessments uh, over time you know, uh, whether it's, uh, your, your um, uh, the sort of psychological assessments or, or MBTI, couldn't think of the name there for a minute. Um, one of the ones that, that I, I did literally at the leadership summit that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago was called Blue, Blue EQ. And it surfaced to me some really new, um, insights into myself. It's also kind of reinforced the stuff that I thought I knew, but it's done it in a way that I'm now taking action one of the things I suffer from is being present. My mind is always spinning on about a thousand different things. Mental agility, people call it. It's great strength. can also be a really big distraction when you have to go deep in, in, in a conversation or a meeting. So that's something I'm working on as a result. So who, uh, authentic diversity. And then I've really enjoyed learning from the blue EQ assessment that I've just done. That was really interesting. And you didn't cheat at all. In fact, you, you gave different value, which is, which is great. Differences, different is always better than better. So that, that, that was, that was really, I've never, I've never come across blue EQ actually. So I'm going to have a look at them and see what they're all about. Um, th this has been an incredible session and, and thank you for taking the time, Andy, to join us. How can, uh, our viewers and listeners, uh, learn more about you and connect with you like everybody else these days i'm on linkedin so andy champion um just look for me there um and then look if there are particular aspects that people would like to follow up on a on an individual level uh, my email address is andy.champion at highspot.com and i'd be happy to pick up um on uh, on anything that people want to follow through on thank you thank you again andy for coming on the show uh, it's been a pleasure to have you on and i, th I think we should probably have you know invite you on again just to cover some of the, the the plethora of other things that are very important that we we didn't get a chance to discuss in in the short space of time that we had. But thank you again for coming on the show, Andy. My very great pleasure. Thank you. Uh, and so this is Moeda Amin signing out. If you are interested in kind of the neural behavioral elements involved in growing a business, so whether that's in terms of persuasion, whether that's hiring the right people, you know, everything that we do in business comes down ultimately to the human to human interaction that ultimately comes down to how we conduct ourselves in terms of persuasion and the habits that we create so if you're interested in learning more about that uh, do please contact me i'll put a link in the in the show notes below but until the next episode thank you and uh, stay legendary bye for now